the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing today's program. In the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel's fight. He's priding pretty hard to make sure that immigration authorities don't pick up and deport criminal illegal aliens from his, well, not so fair city. The question is why? Uh, we'll find out what argument he's making and uh, what the courts are likely to do. We're also going to talk with Dr. Everett Piper. He's the um, author of the the viral uh, article, This Is Not a Daycare. Well, the book that we've been anticipating is now out. It's simply titled Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. He'll join us uh, in the five o'clock hour as well to talk about the follow up to that very provocative um, column he wrote some months back. Well, President Trump today doubled down on his uh, fire and fury warning to North Korea, saying the country should be very, very nervous about even thinking of attacking the United States or its allies. Pushing back against critics who suggest his comments earlier in the week were too forceful, he told reporters maybe it wasn't tough enough. Uh, They've been doing this to our country for a long time, the president said, for many years. He went on to say it's about time that somebody stuck up for the people of this country and for the people of other countries. So if anything, that statement wasn't tough enough, end quote. Well, Trump made the comments at the New Jersey Golf Club where uh, he had a security briefing with Vice President Mike Pence, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. Asked by a reporter what's uh, what's tougher than threatening fire and fury, Trump said, you'll see. Hmm. Well, if North Korea does anything in terms of even thinking about attacking anybody that we love or represent or uh, allies uh, of us, or us, rather, uh, they can be very, very nervous. Well, they've already been threatening, and whether or not they're nervous, uh, it's difficult to tell at this point, but Trump wouldn't say if he's considering a preemptive strike on North Korea. We don't talk about that, he said. I never do. Uh, What they've uh, been doing, what they've been getting away with is a tragedy, and it can't be allowed, he went on to say. Well, tensions have escalated, as you probably know, with North Korea over the last several days. On Tuesday, Trump reacted to reports that North Korea had produced a compact nuclear warhead by warning the country uh, that it would face consequences if it threatened uh, the United States. Interestingly enough, this is similar to a report that was given back in 2015 saying the same thing. So it's kind of interesting that this is breaking news, and yet that same news was reported several years back. We won't go into that today, but perhaps another day. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen, the president said, as you know. Well, hours after his comments, state media in North Korea repeated, rather reported, that its leaders were seriously considering a plan to fire missiles at Guam. The mayor there who said that he's uh, confident that the U.S. military will 
uh, protect and preserve the um, the territory and the people there. But White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that Kelly and members of the National Security Council were aware of the tone of the statement of the president's prior delivery. The words were his own. Well, yesterday, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis issued a threat to North Korea himself in a fiery statement of his own, warning the country not to initiate a conflict. The DPRK regime's actions will continue to be grossly outmatched by ours and would lose any arms race or conflict it initiates, the defense secretary said. Well, Senator John McCain, Democratic lawmakers, many members of the media are quick to criticize President Donald Trump's fire and fury remarks, which are undefined towards North Korea. Um, They uh, suggest that no other U.S. president has used such language, such rhetorical flourish, if you will, about another country. Well, that's not entirely true. Now, whether or not these were the appropriate words at this time to be used by a sitting U.S. president is one thing. But history matters. Comments made by Democratic President Harry Truman after the first atomic bomb was dropped on Japan were arguably much harsher. And um, Bill Clinton has used some pretty harsh language as well. Anyway, CNN anchor Jake Tapper criticized the president's statement, saying this is a time when the, when words should be chosen and measured carefully. Senator John McCain also disapproved of Trump's remarks during an interview on KTAR radio, saying, I take exception to the president's comments because you got to be able to do what you say you're going to do. In other words, the old walk softly but carry a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt saying, which I think is something that uh, should have applied because all it's going to do is bring up bring us closer to a serious confrontation. McCain, who is a strong opponent of Donald Trump, said he went on to say that the great leaders I've seen uh, don't threaten unless they're ready to act. And I'm not sure President Trump is ready to act. Well, that's a big question is uh, not President Trump, because he certainly will not be going. But is the U.S. military prepared to respond in the way that the president suggested? Meanwhile, in addition, many Democrats attacked the president's comments. Senator Dianne Feinstein said that President Trump is not helping the situation with his bombastic comments. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called Trump's uh, fire and fury, quote, reckless rhetoric. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, she concurred, going as far as to say that the president's remark demonstrates weakness and are recklessly belligerent. However, former Democratic President Harry Truman and Bill Clinton have made similar and even stronger comments during times when the security of the U.S., Uh, was being threatened. Now, this isn't a justifier to suggest that the president's comments in the 21st century of uh, this week were the appropriate ones, but history matters. In 1993, the New York Times reported uh, on on his weekend visit to South Korea, President Clinton warned that if North Korea developed and used an atomic weapon, we would quickly and overwhelmingly retaliate. It would mean the end of their country as they know it, he said. Democratic President Truman also used harsh language in 1945 when facing the ongoing threat posed by Japan, saying it is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosened against those who brought war to the Far East. Truman said in a statement on the 6th of August in 1945, after the first atomic bomb was dropped, this is after it was dropped on Hiroshima, the second bomb dropped on the 9th just a few days later. Truman, the only U.S. president to order a nuclear strike on largely civilian targets, went on to say, we are now prepared to obliterate more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have 
uh, above ground in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, their uh, communications. Let there be no mistakes. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. If they do not accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Truman went on to say, behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen, and with the fight, uh, the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. Well, the point I'm making is history does matter. And if you're going to make a statement, no president has ever spoken so harshly. That's not entirely true. Now, whether or not this one should have used the words that he chose, that's for you to decide. And uh, history will certainly uh, tell whether or not these words, um, which differ from what previous administrations have used in the ongoing threats that North Korea continues to make and has made over three uh, administrations, uh, again, only history will tell. Just a point of uh, a point of clarification. We're going to take a quick break, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock. I uh, want to remind you, we're giving away a family four-pack of Singing Christmas Tree tickets. That'll be this hour. So listen up for your opportunity to win. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Laura McClin's son, Jordan, was diagnosed at age four with muscular dystrophy. It's a terminal illness with no cure. But McClin says, well, matters could be much worse. Well, that's because after the family tried for years, Jordan, now eight, qualifies for clinical trials for an experimental drug manufactured by NS Pharma. That uncertainty led Jordan's mom to become a public advocate for others with terminal illnesses who are unable to try experimental drugs that haven't won final approval from the Food and Drug Administration. There are risks involved, as you might imagine. Well, McGlynn is among activists who support so-called right-to-try laws at the state and federal levels. Jordan is one of the lucky ones, she says, speaking to the Daily Signal. At one point... He was too young for the clinical trials. Now we have uh, friends who have children that are too old for the clinical trials without right to try. For some, there's no hope. So far, 37 states, red and blue states, have passed some form of the right to try law, four of those just this year. Still, McGlynn and other advocates believe the FDA could step in to prevent states from implementing the laws and allowing sick patients to have access to drugs. So she said a federal law is needed to be proactive should the FDA seek to supersede state laws. Legislation introduced in the House and Senate would make it easier for terminally ill patients to obtain experimental drugs, but still have some restrictions. Uh, Existing state law would apply only to drugs that successfully completed phase one of the FDA's approval process, but uh, awaits uh, uh, drugs that are awaiting final approval. Well, states that do not have right to try laws are Alaska, Delaware, Hawaii, Kansas, Massachusetts, Nebraska, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont and Wisconsin. Notice I didn't say the state of Washington or the state of Oregon. Well, the Senate bill sponsored by um, uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, of Wisconsin was uh, has bipartisan support with Senators Joe Donnelly, a Democrat, Republican Democrat, uh, and um, Joe Manchin, also a Democrat, Angus King uh, of Maine, an independent, and uh, 40 Republicans have signed on as co-sponsors. Representative Brian Fitzpatrick and Andy Biggs sponsored a companion bill in the House. Representatives, however, of drug manufacturers and patient and physician advocacy groups say that they have concerns about the state laws, according to a July report from the Government Accountability Office. The GAO report says, and I'm quoting, some 
Um, some contended that the laws would not help patients gain access to investigational drugs because they do not compel manufacturers to give access. As we previously noted, manufacturers have cited various reasons why they may not give a patient access to their investigational drug. And it's unclear to what extent these laws would address these concerns. Others raise concerns that the laws might give patients false hope that experimental drugs will cure them. Thus, patients may not fully consider the risks associated with these drugs, which may not be effective and which could potentially be more harmful than no treatment. I suppose if you are a a pharmaceutical group and your your experimental drug is tried, it's still in development and it does not um, it does not prove to be efficacious. The implications might be that even somewhere down the line, the drug is not efficacious. So there are lots of reasons why the pharmaceutical companies would not want uh, to expose uh, patients prior to full approval from the FDA, which uh, then shares the responsibility, the weight of responsibility in these drugs being uh, administered. Still, the Senate's top, uh, top rather, health care priority remains deciding on repealing and replacing Obamacare. So it's not likely the right to try bill is going to move quickly at this point. But it does have the backing of the Trump administration. Vice President Mike Pence, when he was Indiana's governor, signed the state's right to try legislation into law back in 2015. Vice President Pence was proud to sign into law right to try legislation as governor of Indiana. Pence spokesman Mark Lauder says in an, an email, both the president and vice president have expressed their support for right to try and are encouraging encouraged rather by current congressional efforts to help terminally ill patients try to access new medications. Uh, the vice president met with the McGlynn family in February. He restated his commitment to right to try and said President Trump is very supportive and told us, Ms. McGlynn said, I hope to see you at the signing of the federal bill. Well, during his confirmation hearing, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, he told senators uh, his approach would be to balance patients' need to access drugs with the uh, goal of thoroughly testing drugs to protect public safety. Now, that's a very delicate balance. In 2017, so far, four states have adopted right-to-try laws, Maryland, Iowa, Washington, and Kentucky. In previous years, 33 others adopted uh, similar laws, and that, of course, includes Oregon. McGlynn stressed that right-to-try should be a last resort when other options uh, to obtain drugs or treatment aren't available, such as clinical trials or a special FDA program. According to the Goldwater Institute, many of the sickest individuals don't qualify for clinical trials, with only 3% of cancer patients enrolled today. The FDA can already grant permission through a compassion use waiver for some terminally ill patients who lack access to approved medications, but those are approved. However, right-to-try advocates say the FDA's waiver program is time-consuming for doctors and patients because the federal agency has a month to review and grant or deny the request. Additional questions can restart the monitoring process, according to the Goldwater Institute. Nonetheless, the Trump uh, administration seems to be, at least the president and the vice president, along with 37 states, support the notion of right to try experimental drugs. It sounds like a panacea, but it's fraught with all kinds of difficulties. But if you are at the point of last resort, one can imagine that that, that is a risk you would be rather willing to take. Well, if you thought the recent fight over health care reform was fun, get ready for the next big Washington circus. That is raising the debt ceiling. It's not one of those optional things. They must uh, prepare to address the issue. In October of 2015, Congress chose to avoid the usual fight over setting a symbolic debt target by agreeing to waive any limit on the debt for 17 months until March of this year. 
For the past few months, the Treasury Department has engaged in what it calls extraordinary measures to extend the deadline through the end of September. By that time, the U.S. national debt will officially exceed $20 trillion. What are you giving your kids for Christmas this year? (laughs) Huge debt going to have an impact on them in ways you probably haven't even considered, but I digress. As is almost always the case, the big fight will be over whether or not to pass a clean increase in the debt ceiling, one without any amendments. A bill to raise the debt ceiling will require 60 votes in the Senate, effectively giving Democrats veto power over any Republican proposal. If Republicans added a provision supporting mom, the flag, apple pie, Democrats could be counted on to oppose it unanimously. Indeed, many Democrats are expected to back a proposal by Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii to abolish the debt limit altogether. Yet many Republicans see this as one of their few opportunities for budget leverage. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson is typical in uh, warning, I've been raising the issue of the debt ceiling for months now, and certainly what, uh, what I'd like to see is some meaningful structural control enacted in conjunction with increasing the debt limit. <laughs> Good luck with that. If you've been watching the last uh, several months, you know that that's uh, not likely to happen. Although, you know, Hope springs eternal. House Republicans are expected to take an even harder line against uh, any bill that raises the debt ceiling without making any attempt to rein in future spending. Just this week, in fact, Representative Tom Cole of Oklahoma, never considered a firebrand, said that he could um, could not see any scenario in which the House agrees to raise the debt ceiling without accompanying spending cuts. Meanwhile, the conservative House Freedom Caucus is backing a number of separate proposals ranging from as much as $50 billion in spending cuts to a demand that the federal government sell property to pay down the debt. Some also want to uh, attach a partial repeal of Obamacare to the bill, giving you just a little idea of the uh, challenge that lay ahead for members of Congress uh, who are charged with uh, determining whether or not the debt ceiling will be raised and as is um, the goal of some, whether or not the debt ceiling should be eliminated all together. Well, after last month's disappointing failure to roll back Obamacare's uh, damage, senators are now reflecting on how best to proceed, at least on the GOP side. One approach reportedly under consideration is a bill put together by Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, both Republicans, uh, Dean Heller as well out of Nevada. Relief from Obamacare includes three major elements. There's regulatory relief, financial reform through tax cuts and Medicaid reform, It's critical that Congress act on these issues every day that goes by, uh, that Congress doesn't repeal Obamacare. Americans are hurt and further damage uh, uh, to our health care system continues. What approach to take? Hmm. However, many uh, needed reforms are outside the scope of the current legislative effort, which is limited to the constraints of the congressional budget reconciliation process. That's the process they chose because it would be more advantageous to the the Republicans, given the opposition from the Democrats. Well, consequently, rather, just like the bills that were passed by the House but failed in the Senate, the Graham-Cassidy-Heller bill falls short of fully repealing Obamacare and replacing it with a system that supports patients and doctors. Well, if you've been keeping track of how the various bills under consideration measure up against these three major elements, I would refer you uh, to a a, a study that's being done on the uh, Graham-Cassidy-Heller bill and how it uh, measures up to um, to other versions of health care reform. I'll have a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so that you can check that out. Um, but uh, we're being told that the issue will reemerge when they return from their uh, their break. And while they're trying to deal with the debt ceiling and other crucial issues, um, this is still on, well, at least a burner, perhaps the back burner in the Senate as the House awaits uh, the next move on the other side of the aisle.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that we are giving away family four packs of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. We'll be giving away a family four pack today. In fact, this hour. And we'll be giving away two family four packs of Singing Christmas Tree tickets tomorrow, Friday. So listen up for your opportunity today. If you are unsuccessful, there's always tomorrow for dreams to come true. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We'll talk about Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel's legal fight to make sure that uh, immigration authorities don't have access to either pick up or deport criminal illegal aliens from his not-so-fair city. We'll find out why and what uh, what case he is making. We're also going to talk with Dr. Everett Piper. He's the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Again, both in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has requested copies of immigration files for the six Pakistani suspects in the House IT scandal, only one of whom is in custody, who allegedly stole equipment from Congress and, and uh, accessed computers without permission. Well, Grassley uh, is seeking more information on Imran Awan, his wife, his two brothers, and two of his close friends in connection to the scandal. Capitol Police have accused Awan and his associates of violating congressional security policies and stealing equipment from Congress. Awan is from Pakistan and was arrested by the FBI in July as he tried to board a flight to the country. Well, in light of the alleged illegal activity, the committee seeks to better understand Awan and his associates' immigration history, Grassley said in an August 4th letter to Elaine Duke, acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. The letter was uh, made public by the committee on Monday. Uh, Please provide the alien file for the individuals listed below. He continued, please also include any temporary files, working files and all documents and items contained in them that were generated by DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, or in its possession. The Iowa Republican was first elected to the Senate in 1981 and in his role as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, wants to find out uh, how these individuals uh, were able to enter the country and how they gained uh, such unprecedented, given their status, uh, access to congressional um, computers and uh, information. Besides Awan, the immigration files were requested for his wife, uh, his brothers, uh, his sister-in-law, and his friend. All are suspects in the criminal investigation, which became uh, public in February. Uh, Awan began working as an IT aide in 2004, Grassley said in the letter. Later, his wife, two brothers, two friends began working as IT aides for nearly 30 congressmen over the span of 13 years. They collected more than $4 million, a sum that is reported to be three times higher than the norm for a government contractor. All of the uh, congressmen involved are House Democrats, including several on the Intelligence, Foreign Affairs and Homeland Security Committees. The IT aides had access to all of the emails and office files of these congressmen and women who employed them on a shared basis. The employment of all the the suspects, rather, was terminated in February, except Awan's wife, who was uh, retained by Representative Wasserman Schultz until March. Uh, Schultz, who was the Democratic National Committee chair until uh, July of last year, kept Awan on her payroll until July the 25th. 
Awan was arrested on the 24th of July in, uh, at Dulles International Airport by the FBI, U.S. Capitol Police, and Customs and Border Protection before he could board the flight to Pakistan. His wife returned there in March along with their three children. It was believed he had no intention of returning to the United States. Authorities charged him with bank fraud in connection with a $165,000 mortgage loan from Wright-Patman Congressional Federal Credit Union. Uh, his wire transferred... Um, Rather, he wire transferred $283,000 to Pakistan prior to his attempt to flee the country, according to a court document filed by the FBI. Within hours of his arrest, he retained an attorney, a defense attorney, um, Chris Gowan, who is a longtime associate of uh, former President Clinton and former Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, we'll continue to follow this story as it develops. It's just a rather interesting uh, story, particularly in light of how much money they were paid, and if the assessment is correct, that it was several times uh, more money than the average uh, individuals in the same capacity ought to have been paid. It does raise a number of uh, very interesting questions. I won't speculate about them because that would be uninformed, but nonetheless, it will be interesting to see what information emerges. Well, a federal judge has ordered the State Department to search the state.gov email accounts of Hillary Clinton aides Huma Abedin, Cheryl Mills, and Jacob Sullivan for records related to Benghazi. Yes, it's still in the news, sort of, as part of a Watchdog Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. U.S. District Judge for the District of Columbia, Amit Mehta, uh, made the call on Tuesday, described the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed by Judicial Watch in March of 2015 as a far cry from a typical Freedom of Information Act case. He noted that Secretary Clinton used a private email server located in her home, we all know that, to transmit and receive work-related communications during her tenure as Secretary of State. The sole remaining dispute in this case is the adequacy of states' search for responsive records. Meta wrote in his opinion and order, noting that the State Department has argued the search through Clinton aides' emails is likely to be unfruitful. Likely, but you don't really know until, well, there's a search through the emails. Uh, Maida, the judge, wrote that the State Department has not, however, searched the one record system over which it has always had control and that is almost certain to contain some responsive records, the state.gov email server. If Secretary Clinton sent an email about Benghazi to Abedin, Mills, or Sullivan at his or her state.gov email address, or if one of them sent an email to Secretary Clinton using his or her state.gov account, then state server presumably would have captured and stored such an email. A state has an obligation to search its own server for responsive records. Well, the uh, conservative watchdog group is engaged in numerous Freedom of Information Act lawsuits seeking records pertaining to the actions of the last administration, including, in this case, records regarding the response uh, to the 2012 terror attack in Libya. The court ordered that the State Department conduct a a supplemental search of Abedin, Mills, and Sullivan state.gov email accounts and set a deadline of September 22nd for the department to update the court on the status. Now, this major court ruling may finally result in more answers about the Benghazi scandal and Hillary Clinton's involvement in it as we approach the attacks of uh, the fifth anniversary, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said. It is remarkable that we had to battle both Obama and Trump administrations to break through the State Department's Benghazi stone wall. We'll see what comes uh, of this, and if in fact uh, these emails uh, sort of slipped through the fingers of the firewall, if you will, that was set up uh, between the Secretary of State and some of her operatives, um, but the uh, the fight continues through the Freedom of Information Act. 
Well, in um, in Seattle, city leaders there have uh, come up with a social justice wealth redistribution scheme. Uh, they are democracy vouchers. And what are these democracy vouchers? Well, essentially, they're the result of a tax levied on all Seattle property owners and only property owners with the funds collected to be distributed via a voucher program in which Seattle residents can give funds to the political candidate of their choice. Now, these are funds that don't technically belong to them. They were exacted from others who own property in the the city of Seattle, but they are redistributed to those who do not own property for this purpose of underwriting uh, political campaigns. In other words, property owners would be forced to pay for the political speech of non-property owners. Well, property owners are footing the bill for politicians they may not agree with, all in the guise of equality. As some Seattle property owners opined, it puts other people's political beliefs in my mouth, so to speak. Uh, What this tax truly amounts to is a penalty on property and those who actually have the most invested in seeing the city prosper. It also is an abuse, rather, of an individual right of conscience. No one should be forced to pay for the political speech of those with whom they disagree. That's precisely what the uh, what the uh, the law would do, the democracy vouchers underwritten by property owners in Seattle. Another example of the abuse caused by these uh, democracy vouchers, as they're called, is a woman who owns rental property in Seattle. Due to the fact that she is not a resident of the city, she does not um, have a right to avail herself of the vouchers. She pays for them, but she can't make use of them. Even worse, the candidate who's received a majority of the vouchers is a housing activist campaigning on collective bargaining rights for renters, something many rental owners firmly oppose. And yet their money is being used to support a candidate who would potentially ruin their business. Seems rather convoluted. And while stealing from the rich to pay for the poor makes a feel-good twist on a classic fairy tale, in reality, it's still... Well, stealing, which is neither just nor beneficial. Now, will there be a challenge to this law? We'll continue to follow what happens in Seattle. Meanwhile, there is a suit over their controversial income tax on the wealthy. A conservative group is suing the city uh, there over its controversial tax that targets high-income earners as part of what local uh, lawmakers describe as a new formula for fairness. You earn a certain amount, you are obligated to forfeit a certain amount to underwrite others. Well, Seattle's tax code passed by its city council in July now requires residents there to pay a 2.25% income tax if they are uh, a single filer and make over uh, $250,000 annually or file jointly and make above $500,000. Washington is among one of seven states nationwide that doesn't collect a personal income tax. So the city's tax is the only income-based tax Seattle residents might pay. Well, the suit that was filed yesterday on behalf of several of the city's residents argued that the city's plan to tax the rich is unconstitutional because the state of Washington already imposes strict tax levies, forbids taxes on net income, and requires cities to get permission to tax residents. Well, the Freedom Foundation is accusing the city of Seattle of willfully and knowingly adopting a law that can only survive if the courts abandon decades of precedent Precedent grounded in Washington's fundamental commitment to legal equality. Well, Seattle's ongoing Democratic, or rather outgoing Democratic mayor, Ed Murray, said the goal of the tax is to replace our regressive tax system with a new formula for fairness while ensuring Seattle stands up, uh, stands up to President Trump's austere budget that cuts transportation, affordable housing, health care, and social services. Well, according to estimates, the new tax could generate about $140 million a year, cost between 10 to $13 million 
million to set up uh, with an additional $6 million a year in enforcement costs. Funds generated are allocated for affordable housing projects and social services for low-wage workers. We'll see what uh, happens in this suit in the city of Seattle. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will um, give away our first family four-pack of the day. Well, first and only uh, for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. We'll do this twice on Friday, so stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, every year for the last 55 years, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has, well, it's really introduced the Christmas season to hundreds of thousands of people in the Portland metro area. And this year is no exception. In fact, they're celebrating the 55th uh, year of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. It's going to be spectacular. Of course, that was true in the 54th year, the 53rd, the 45th, you know, all of them. Anyway, they are back at the Keller Auditorium. They returned last year, and we would love for you to uh, to participate and to um, uh, encourage you to do that. We're going to be giving away a family four-pack of Singing Christmas Tree tickets uh, in just a moment. I also want to encourage you, right up until the 14th of this month, you have the opportunity to enjoy a discount I think it's something like $5 off per ticket. And this is the lowest price available for singing Christmas tree tickets. So if you're planning on going or just thinking about going, now is the time to take advantage of those discounts. Uh, and you can go to the, the website, just Google singing Christmas tree, and uh, you can get all the important information. But now we want to give away a family four-pack of tickets. Uh, and the uh, date can be determined at the time that you negotiate your uh, your prize. Uh, the telephone number to call and uh, caller number six, 1-800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, we're talking about a family four pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which begins the day after Thanksgiving and straddles that and the following weekend. Again, 1-800-845-2162. A family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, caller number six. Well, how does this appeal to you? A Wisconsin company is offering a microchip to its employees, enabling them to open doors, to log on to their computers, purchase break room snacks with a simple swipe of the hand. It sounds so innocuous and uh, so convenient. Well, the Three Square Market, also known as 32M, said more than 50 employees are voluntarily getting implants. Uh, they did so, in fact, on the first of this month at what the company is calling a chip party at its River Falls headquarters. The chips are the size of a grain of rice and are inserted underneath the skin between the thumb and the fork fingers using a syringe. The procedure takes a couple of seconds. The technology is already available in Europe, but company leaders say that it's... Uh, uh, first appearance in the United States started on the 1st of August with their company. They hope the $300 microchips can eventually be used on more than just snack machines, everything from air travel, public transit, storing medical information, I don't know, buying and selling. Uh, we want to be on the forefront of this, they said. This is something that's coming. Uh, he said, that's the president, Kurt Giles, uh, the president of 32M, which operates 2,000 self-checkout kiosks for companies in 20 countries. The company is partnering with uh, Sweden's Biohacks International, where employees have been using the implants. Three Square Market is uh, paying for employees' uh, microchips. While the technology has raised privacy concerns, among other concerns, wink, wink. 
Uh, Because of the potential to track a person's whereabouts and purchases and so on, officials at 32M said the data in the microchip is encrypted and does not use GPS. But a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee said he worries about the potential for function creep. We've seen that in all manner of areas involving technology where the stated purpose of a technology ends up spilling over into other uses, including surveillance. This is one of those technologies that sound like it might create some kind of efficiency, but to me, the downside is just too great. Michael Zimmer, he teaches Internet Ethics and Privacy at the college's School of Information Studies. Zimmer said what 32M is trying to achieve can be done through less invasive means like an iPhone app or something like that. Part of my general concern, he went on to say, is that we don't go too fast and that we understand the implications of these sorts of technologies, which is why it's good Uh, We're having this conversation. Now, for those of us who are students of the Bible, we take it seriously. We have other concerns as well. Well, Giles and other company executives say they're having microchips implanted themselves next week, but which was last week. Um, But understand employees who don't want to do it. About 85 people work at 32M. We have employees who have said, I just don't want to do it. And we have uh, our 100% Respect that, he said. That's the vice president, Tony Dana, of development. He said the microchips can be easily removed in seconds, just as uh, if you were taking a sliver out of your finger. The company is using the microchips in-house for now, but other organizations have expressed interest in recent days, including hospital chain uh, and others. He said he could not reveal the names of those who have expressed interest. We need to be responsible with this. This is not something you can do fast, McMullen said. It has to be done right You have to proceed slowly. And that's generally how major shifts and changes occur very slowly. And before you know it, well, we'll leave that an open-ended statement. Well, if we fill our heads with poison and junk, we make ourselves angry and dumb. That's a quote from Philadelphia's Archbishop Charles Caput. He said uh, during a talk at a recent uh, Napa Institute conference on how to live in the world and also make uh, make it anew, As he was speaking, everyone who's been following politics, like a seemingly endless televised car crash, was focused on the mooch of the White House and uh, his erratic, foul interview with The New Yorker and the many things that have followed. Um, You don't have to be a Pollyanna about the words used in Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., rather, whatever you think of the administration or anyone in it. This atmosphere is not healthy. And that's what uh, Caput was addressing, not the Trump administration in general or Anthony Scaramucci specifically. He was referring to the bad air we breathe these days. And I'm not referring to the uh, smoke outside. Um, He says that hell has been described in a lot of ways, from a soulless bureaucracy to a furnace of fire to a lake of ice, Caput said. I've never heard it, a lake of ice, but I'm quoting. But I think C.S. Lewis put it best in one of his novels when he says that hell is a noise. If that's true, and I think it is, then much of the modern life we share, we also make hellish by filling it with discord, confusion, and noise. Now, to be plain, I don't believe that uh, noise is the... uh, the biblical description of hell, but it certainly is an aspect that could be present there. Nonetheless, uh, every day, every one of our choices is a brick in the structure of the heaven or hell we're building for ourselves in the next life. And again, theologically, I think we differ, but I think you get the point that he's attempting to make. And we'll never understand that unless we turn off the noise that cocoons us in consumer anxieties and appetites. Silence, he added, is the water in the desert of modern desire. How difficult is it for you to turn the noise off, to sit in silence, to contemplate, to simply ponder? He continued, 
You don't see the full effects of the good we do in this life. So much of what we do seems a tangle of frustrations and failures. We don't see on this side of the tapestry the pattern of meaning that our faith weaves. But one day we'll stand on the other side, and on that day we'll see the beauty that God has allowed us to add to the great story of his creation, the revelation of his love that goes from age to age, no matter how good or bad the times. And this is why our lives matter. Well, earlier in his remarks, he'd set the stage for this idea. Faith is a seed. It doesn't flower overnight. It takes time and love and effort. Money is important, but it's never the most important thing. The future belongs to people with children, not with things. Things rust and break, but every child is a universe of possibility that reaches into eternity, connecting our memories and our hopes in a sign of God's love across the generations. That's what matters. The soul of a child is forever. For that matter, the soul of an adult. That's what matters. Not everyone um, reading this believes in God, but take a look at the uh, beauty that exists even amidst the noise. There's more to the world than what we often focus on, acknowledge and celebrate. And people are um, enslaved to things of this world. One last thing that from Caput's remarks, and I'm quoting, knowledge is not wisdom, wisdom, not knowledge in the framework of the fully human, the architecture of interior peace. Scripture is the word of God. And Ecclesiastes tells us that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. How many rulers and fools do we are we surrounded by these days? Wisdom is more powerful than might and better than the weapons of war. Ecclesiastes 9, 16 through 18. Wisdom is more precious than jewels. And once we have it, then knowledge becomes pleasant to the soul. We often strive to accumulate degrees and other credentials of the world. These can be important, but they do not make us wise. Titles do not make us wise. Elected office does not make us wise, and don't we know it? Wealth does not make us wise. Having a public platform does not make us wise, or a microphone, I would add. Having all the information in the world on our phones, as if appendages of our very beings, definitely does not make us wise. There's wisdom, however, in seeing the world beyond the president's next tweet. To paraphrase St. Augustine, there's... Um, no use whining about the times because we are the times. There's a wisdom in not wasting time scrolling, refreshing, and downloading, and in avoiding angry and dumb at all costs. We were made by and for great love by one who loves greatly, to nurture and be nurtured by all the gifts of creation, most especially our lives. Something to ponder as time passes. We've got uh, news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We're going to talk about what's happening in Chicago and why the mayor there is uh, fighting the federal government in court. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Zero Res. Well, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel is fighting hard to make sure that immigration authorities don't pick up and deport criminal illegal aliens from his, as my next guest puts it, not-so-fair city. And the question is, why? Well, Hans von Spakovsky, writing for Fox News Opinion, says that Chicago is plagued with violent crime. It suffered nearly 800 homicides last year, and that's only part of the picture. So why is Mayor Rahm Emanuel fighting so hard to make sure that immigrant uh, immigration authorities rather don't pick up and deport criminal illegal aliens from his not so fair city? Well, joining us to answer that question is Hans von Spakovsky. He manages the Election Law Reform Initiative, and he is a senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, well, thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk about um, Rahm Emanuel and what he is. Uh, he announced this last weekend that Chicago would sue the Department of Justice over its guidelines concerning sanctuary cities. Take it from there. Well, they actually did it. I uh, read the lawsuit they filed, and it's, I, I mean, it's really a bizarre suit. I mean, in essence, they're saying that um, they don't want to have to comply with any aspect of federal immigration law, and that therefore the Justice Department shouldn't be allowed to make that a condition of cities like Chicago applying for federal grants. Uh, last year, they applied for one of the grants that the Justice Department has the discretion to give out, that they, uh, they give it out to cities with the intention that it be used to try to improve you know, their law enforcement. And last year, Chicago got a little over $2 million, and now you know, Chicago has sued saying that shouldn't be a condition they have to comply with when they apply once again to the Justice Department in September for another grant like that. Um, uh, Sessions, Jeff Sessions, um, uh, who's the Justice Department, uh, had uh, offered a memo um, that says only cities that comply with federal law uh, and allow federal immigration access to detention facilities would would uh, have access to uh, these federal dollars. And what uh, Rahm Emanuel is arguing is that this is somehow a, a usurpation of the authority of the city by the federal government. Can you address that uh, that claim that uh, somehow this violates the sovereignty, if you will, of a city by the feds? Well, sure. That, that's really, I think, a, a ridiculous claim. In fact, I'd say it's absurd. And here's why. Look, the federal government, the Justice Department is saying you've got to allow federal immigration authorities access to detention facilities. What they mean is that if Chicago has a criminal, uh, illegal alien in jail because they've violated some local law, you know, for, for perhaps they're in jail because, of they, because they assaulted someone, um, They've got, to, uh, they've got to give the feds access to be able to talk to and interrogate that criminal alien. Uh, uh, Emmanuel says, oh, no, we can't allow that. That, that federalizes um, our local facilities, and it's a violation of our rights. Well, they do that all the time. You know, when, when, if the FBI believes, for example, that a local... Um, criminal who's in jail uh, has violated federal law. Maybe he's robbed a bank, uh, which is a federal crime, or perhaps uh, they think he's a terrorist, which is also a federal crime. Uh, Law enforcement uh, routinely allow federal authorities, FBI agents, in to talk to prisoners. They don't think twice about it. And yet somehow, you know, Manuel says, oh, that, that can't be allowed for people who are in the country illegally. And, he, and these people aren't in crime. They're, they're not in prison for immigration crimes, for being in the country illegally. They're in jail for things like murder, assault, sexual assaults, um, burglary, property crimes. And yet he's trying to protect them from, from that. I, why? I, I really don't understand. Hmm. He also um, conflates legal immigrants with illegal immigrants and those who are not um, being held for or been charged with a crime of any kind. Yeah, he does. In fact, you know, he held a big press conference about this over the weekend before they filed suit. And he, he gives this whole statement about how, you know, half the patents of the University of Illinois are coming from immigrants and we want to welcome immigrants and build a new America. Well, this has nothing to do with legal immigrants, which is what he's talking about. This has to do with 
criminal, illegal immigrants, and yet he somehow wants to protect them. You know, the other complaint they make in the lawsuit also, which is, uh, again, I think absurd, is they claim there's an amendment of the Fourth Amendment, a violation of the Fourth Amendment, uh, because they claim the Justice Department is telling them they'll have to hold criminal aliens 48 hours past the time they should normally be, be released. That actually is factually wrong. The only thing the Justice Department is saying is, look, if you have a criminal illegal alien in jail, we want you to agree to notify us 48 hours before you release them. They're not saying hold them longer. An additional, yeah, to. yeah. Right. But 48, you know, if somebody's in, in jail for a month because they're convicted of DUI, well, 28 days into the sentence, uh, two days before they're going to release him, they want the Justice Department notified so immigration authorities can come and pick him up and deport them. What's the, what prospect is there of uh, him being successful, or is this just a demonstration for his constituents? I think it's a demonstration for his constituents. I think this is a political lawsuit. If you read the legal complaint, it reads like a press release, not like an actual uh, lawsuit. You know, he may get a friendly uh, federal judge. Uh, he may get someone who President Obama appointed to rule from initially, but in the long run, he's going to run. A, a, an almost identical lawsuit, you know, was filed by the city of San Francisco and Santa Clara a couple of months ago. And in that case, the judge uh, refused to stop the Justice Department from being able to have these kind of conditions in the discretionary grants that they give out. So what might we expect in terms of a timeline? They have asked, they filed a lawsuit Monday. They asked for a temporary restraining order. So what that means is the judge will very quickly schedule a hearing at which he'll, he'll, he'll uh, hear arguments uh, and decide whether he should issue an order that would prevent the Justice Department from uh, enforcing these conditions. So we're, we're going to hear pretty quickly about that. All right. Well, we'll keep our eyes and ears open. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, anytime. Appreciate it. Again, Hans von Spakovsky, he is a senior uh, legal fellow with the... Uh, um, the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Everett Piper. He is the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now consider this from the book we're going to be talking about, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Now, Americans are sick and tired of hearing about the endless rioting and controversy on college campuses. Students refuse to learn anything that makes them uncomfortable. And too many educators and even parents are failing to encourage an understanding of truths and absolutes. They don't want to hear that all lives matter or that there is a God-given difference between male and female. They'd rather hide with a coloring book and a taxpayer-provided safe space. What's happened to the American spirit? We've gone from give me liberty or give me death to take care of me, please. Well, in his brand new book that we have anticipated for some time, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and author of the viral essay, This is Not a Daycare, it is a university, lays out the key culprit of this pandemonium and confusion among students, the fear and abandonment of truth. 
Well, I'm uh, delighted that uh, Dr. Piper is with us. Again, he's the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He's the author of Why I Am a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas and the viral op-ed I mentioned a moment ago. In 2015, he received the Gene Kirkpatrick Award for Academic Freedom from the Bradley Foundation and the Conservative Political Action Committee, or CPAC. Uh, he has also uh, written uh, routinely for a number of publications. He's a native of Hillsdale, Michigan. Dr. Piper and his family, his wife and two sons, uh, serve uh, at the university as their first family and have done so since August of 2002. He actively participates on a variety of councils relating to cultural engagement and public policy, and we are delighted to have him back to talk about his book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, I'm honored. Thank you. Now, you make the point that you have been asked by college leaders, countless concerned parents all across the country, how did we get here and what's the solution? Many of us are aware of uh, at least uh, some degree of the problem, but what we do about it is uh, the other half of the equation that many of us are puzzled by. This book is an answer to those questions. Well, the first question is, how, you, can't, you can't fix the problem until you understand what it is. Mm-hmm. So how did we get here and what is the problem? We got here by teaching terrible ideas for several decades. Richard Weaver told us, 1948, his seminal work, Ideas Have Consequences. That was the title. What was his point? Ideas have consequences. They matter. There's no such thing as a neutral idea. Value neutrality, intellectual neutrality, moral neutrality is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. All ideas bear fruit. And if you teach good ideas, you get good culture, good kids, good community, good corporations, good country, good government, etc. And when you teach bad ideas... You get the opposite, like your grandmother said, garbage in and garbage out. And that's what we're seeing today. After decades of teaching victimization, we now see vice and vengeance in the college green. You know, we've taught kids, excuse me, self-absorption and narcissism for decades, and now we're surprised to see them being self-absorbed and narcissistic. We're getting the very thing that was so predictable. We're getting the results of terrible teaching, terrible ideas at our colleges and universities. So are we the victims of being frogs in the stew pot? How over many decades have we allowed this to happen? Generally speaking, we were, were we simply unaware or we were so comfortable in the warming water that we, we missed what was ultimately the fruit that was going to be born and we're experiencing now? I would argue as a Christian, and all my answers that I'm sharing with you tonight are, are from the context of being a committed Christian. Jesus told us you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He didn't tell us opinions set us free. He told us the truth sets us free. In fact, that phrase of Christ is emblazoned on thousands of library headers across the nation and even in, in, uh, in Europe. And why? It's because we've always recognized the paradox of discipline and freedom, of freedom and fences, if you will, to quote G.K. Chesterton, and liberty and law. We've recognized that you can't participate in a sport unless you discipline yourself to the rules of the sport. And you can't, uh, you can't play an instrument. You can't participate in a concerto, if you will, unless you understand the rules of music and you discipline yourself to practice and become a musician. And we've given that up when it comes to intellectual rigor and the business of the academy. We've started teaching that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you, and we've actually thought that that would end well for us. It won't. Well, we've replaced the the notion of truth with the idea of information. The more we have, the more access we have to it, whether or not we understand it, we know how it fits together with other things, whether or not it's meaningful. Information has sort of become 
the, the thing that we uh, we pursue, and in, in that process, having access to little bits and pieces of information uh, in any circumstance, we really know very little, and it, it seems to be costing us more than I think we might have originally thought it might. Well, it's interesting you use the word information. I would, I would ask this question of anybody who's interested in education, whether for yourself or for your kids. Should education be about more information or more ethics? Should education be about earning more money or understanding your morality? Should education be about developing character or getting a career? My point is this. There are big ideas. There are better ideas that education has always stood for. That's the classical liberal Mm -hmm. arts model because it stood for liberty and liberation and freedom and justice, not just acquiring more information and not just earning more money. The point of the liberal arts institution in, the, in Europe, as, you know, if you want to start with Oxford and come all the way over to Harvard, Dartmouth, Princeton, and Yale, was to educate a moral citizenry so that we could have a free country. Well, we certainly have drifted far from those original ideas that fueled the, uh, the efforts that established these institutions of higher learning. Um, you, in, in the book Not a Daycare, you write about the prodigal university. When you look at the, the start of many of the institutions that you've mentioned and others, uh, that was the primary goal. Describe the prodigal university, which implies that there's a way back. Well, where did we start? The prodigal son started at home. We started with a very rich heritage and inheritance at home. In fact, Harvard's original mission statement said to lay Christ at the bottom as the foundation for all learning. Every Ivy League institution, except for one, was founded explicitly as a Judeo-Christian institution, an institution that, that honored the Bible as the inerrant word of God, as the context for all learning, as the measuring rod outside of those things being measured, to quote C.S. Lewis. Where have we gone? We've left home. We've wallowed around like pigs in the pig flop in our own opinions, our own ideas, our own constructs, and it hasn't ended very well for us. It's time for us to return home to the objective standard of truth and recognize that Lady Justice is blind for a reason, that when she takes her blindfold off and puts her thumb on the scales, you have no justice any Mm -hmm. longer because the judge is biased. The Mm -hmm. only way we're going to have freedom is return to the context of truth. I think every listener to this program today would agree with that notion, but have has very little confidence that it's possible. This long, slow march toward uh, the place we are today in which uh, we have uh, snowflakes that, that can't handle opposition of any kind or discomfort of any kind. It's difficult to imagine that the, the ship of education can, in fact, slowly uh, turn uh, to face the opposite direction. Are you optimistic that that's possible and uh, that, that there's a role to be played by average people like the moms and dads listening today, many of whom are terrified at the prospect of sending their sons and daughters or grandparents, their grandchildren, to an institution of higher learning? They should be terrified, and they should be very cautious. They should ask themselves this question. When the data shows that 70% of our sons and daughters will lose their faith before they become juniors in college, I would ask moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, why are you spending your money on those types of institutions? But I'm an optimist because I believe if you vote with your pocketbook, you'll find happening all over the country what you see happening at the University of Missouri right now. Their enrollment is plummeting because people are fed up with this nonsense and they're voting with their feet, they're voting with their pocketbook, they're choosing to go elsewhere and not pay for this problem. There are a handful of institutions in the nation that still believe in those self-evident truths endowed to us by our Creator. They still believe that God is God and you are not. They still believe that the Bible is an inspired word of God that is our measuring rod outside of everything that we're measuring, and therefore we can measure. 
There are a handful, just a handful left, and parents should be very intent on finding those institutions. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversations. One of the things that we'll talk about when we return is how parents can make sure that they're choosing the right college uh, for their sons and daughters. So we'll get to that and much more in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the much-anticipated book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. The book is published by Regnery Faith. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Everett Piper. He's the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and the author of the viral essay, This is Not a Daycare, It's a University. His much anticipated book, Not a Daycare, is now out and available. I would recommend it to all of our listeners to help us better understand the challenge and where we go from here. In the book, he um, offers examples of the snowflake insanity that's uh, including the demand for safety places and trigger warnings at universities and its cultural implications. He writes about the dangerous intolerance of many liberal colleges and universities and how it's informing the worldviews of impressionable students, many of them your sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, and the importance of protecting free speech against activists who want to shut the mouths of Christians and conservatives on college campuses, and most importantly, what parents and concerned Americans can do. And I appreciate that there there is something we can do. Let's begin there, because families are in the process uh, all the time of helping young people decide where they're going to pursue their uh, higher education. How can parents make sure that they're choosing the right college for their child? There are historic Christian colleges and universities, for example, that have drifted, and it's difficult to uh, to know how to make decisions that are sound and reflect where a college or university stands today, as opposed to its historic set of core values. First of all, don't trust the four-color brochure. Just hmm. don't trust it. You need to ask questions. Be an informed consumer. I've told parents over and over again when they ask me the exact same question you just asked, how do we know? I've said, pull the president of the university aside and ask him two simple questions. Now, number one, if he won't meet with you, don't go there. You're spending too much money to be ignored. But if you do get his time, asking, ask him these two questions. Number one, what's your view of truth? Number two, What's your view of Scripture? Now, just be quiet and listen. Just listen. If truth is an objective reality, if it's a self-evident truth endowed to us by our Creator, as opposed to a postmodern construct that you and I just make up as we go, that's a good answer. If Scripture is the inerrant Word of God, a revelation of God that's infallible, authoritative, enduring, immutable, and true, good answer. If he doesn't answer those ways, it's not because he's stupid and didn't understand your question. It's he doesn't want to answer you, and he doesn't want you to know. I would suggest that if you're not going to an institution that honors the objectivity of truth and the revelation of Scripture, that you're going to an institution that is a waste of your time and money. Mm. Now, I mentioned a moment ago uh, some examples that you offer in the book of this uh, snowflake insanity, um, the demand for safe places or uh, spaces, rather, and trigger warnings at universities. Paint a picture of, of what's happening on college campuses across the country so that parents who perhaps are not familiar uh, with uh, with some of this, we'll understand what we're talking about and what you're warning against. Okay, I'll give you a couple examples. But if somebody's tempted to tune out right now because they don't have a kid going to college, think of this week's story about Google and how uh, an engineer has been terminated simply because he expressed an idea. Mm-hmm. Why? Because this, we've been teaching this nonsense. Okay, Middlebury College. 
uh, speaker was brought in that was conservative. The students rebelled. There was a snowflake rebellion. They said that he was offensive. They felt unsafe because of his conservative views. They actually grabbed the hair of the sponsoring faculty member, wrenched her neck backward by pulling on her hair. She had to go to the hospital, and she was in a neck brace the next day. This is all done under the banner of tolerance. It's akin to saying, I can't tolerate your intolerance, and I hate you hateful people, and I'm sure that nothing is sure, and I know nothing can be known. They're sawing off the very branch upon which they sit. It's self-refuting at every turn. We have the uh, we have Evergreen Evergreen State College, where they're actually having a day where people of a given race, people with a certain color of skin, are not welcome on campus. Now, I would rather go to a school that believes in the content of your character rather than the color of your skin as being a predicate for enrollment. And I could go on and on with similar stories across the nation. Uh, You're talking about this dangerous intolerance of uh, many liberal colleges and universities. Uh, Talk a bit about how it's informing the worldview of uh, worldviews of impressionable students and the broader implications. I mean, they're students for a season, but then they become employers and employees. They become the next generation of teachers influencing a younger generation. Talk a bit about the, uh, the, um, the, the impact this is having uh, on the broader culture. Well, the perfect example in our, in our current day is the loss of the definition of marriage and the loss of definition of what it means to be a woman. Marriage is no longer a sacrament of the church. It's been stolen from the church. It's been redefined by the government. What about that separation of church and state issue? How did the government get over that wall and claim the power and the authority to define a sacrament of the church. Where was our culture? Where were our kids? Where was the citizenry rising up and saying, no, it's none of your business? Now, let's go to the definition of women. We are actually told today that a female is not a biological fact any longer. She's nothing but a fabrication and a fantasy. She's make-believe. She's a leprechaun. She's a unicorn. She's not real. Women aren't real any longer. Any delusional or dysphoric male that wants to raise his hand on a given day and say, I am one, can take away your privacy, take away your locker room, take away your shower, take away your bathroom, and take away your very identity by claiming he is female when he's not. What could be more misogynistic than to tell you that you don't exist? These are two clear examples of where we've lost our ability to even understand the responsibility we have to define things as objective facts rather than just our feelings. Mm. We're talking about the book, Not a Daycare. Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, uh, is the author and our guest this afternoon. How can families prepare their students, their sons and daughters, to defend themselves? And I suppose that doesn't begin the summer before they're about to, to go off, but this is a, a lifelong process. But how do they prepare them, their students uh, adequately for the challenges that lay ahead? Well, before they go to college, I would strongly recommend some of the Worldview Academies that exist out there. In fact, one is called Worldview Academy. And go Google it, look them up, send your kids there. You can start sending them when they're 13, 14 years of age, and then send them there for the next three to four years until they graduate and go off to college. Another one is Summit Ministries. Excellent. It's a two-week boot camp for you to go and get, uh, get bound up, if you will, on how to defend your faith. Zacharias Ministries has excellent programs. The Colson Center has excellent programs. We have to understand that we need to catechize the next generation of believers to define and defend their faith. 
Otherwise, they're going to get caught in this nonsense of emerging Christianity when there is no definition. And we actually have people like Rob Bell telling us that the Bible is nothing but, quote-unquote, 2,000-year-old letters that we need to move beyond and quit trusting. Mm. You have a chapter titled, Thank God for the Church. What role do you see the Church playing in addressing the challenges you've just described and helping to prepare a generation that is uh, equipped and has the courage to confront the culture uh, in this destructive path that it's on? Well, historically, the church, and I use that as a capital C, mm-hmm. has been the solution to the problem. It hasn't been the problem. The church has the unique capability of self-reflection, of reformation, of repentance, of reconciliation. In other words, the church understands what true north is. It can look at, it, at itself, it can see its own errors, it can repent of those errors, and it can return. It can return to true north. It's called confession. It's called going back to Christ. The Church needs to understand that it has always been the solution to these problems. It's the Church that rose up against slavery. It's the Church that has stood for suffrage. It's the Church that has stood for the dignity of the woman. It's the Church that has rescued children from the out-of-control male libido. It is the Church that is the solution, and we need to recognize, as members of the body of Christ, what the responsibility of the Church is. Again, the title of the book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. I would encourage you to pick up a copy for yourself and one for your church library. It is a must-read. And I thank you, uh, Dr. Piper, so much for the book, for the article that prompted the the book and your willingness to be outspoken. I know that uh, you had the opportunity to speak in a lot of different media platforms uh, because you had the courage to address uh, the the challenges. And uh, again, I thank you for your willingness to do that and to talk with us here today. Oh, thank you. I've been honored to be on your show. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. The book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. The book is published by Regnery Faith. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about another malady in our culture, one that we can do something about. Loneliness. They say it's more dangerous than obesity, particularly when you're talking about the elderly, but certainly not limited to that population. We'll talk about it in just a few moments when we come back for our final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I was reading a Market Watch article and the, the headline, Why Loneliness is More Dangerous Than Obesity, I found to be rather intriguing. And uh, the article was written by Alessandra Malito. And uh, one of the reasons I found it uh, so uh, interesting is the fact that I'm a caregiver. As you know, my as many of you know, I should say, my mother lives with my husband and me. And while that's a challenge, one of the reasons we... Uh, chose to do that was uh, to make sure she was not living in isolation, that she had regular contact and fellowship and she could get around when she needed to and and we could monitor how she was doing. Anyway, in uh, Alessandra's uh, column, she writes that one of the loneliest number and sometimes it uh, one rather is the loneliest number and sometimes it could even be the most dangerous. She writes that loneliness is just as much of a public health hazard as obesity, if not more so, according to research presented at the American Psychological Association annual conference last week. Research from 148 studies involving 300,000 participants showed people who had greater social connections had a 50% reduced risk of dying early. And another set of research involving 70 studies represented 3.4 million people in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia found so Social isolation, loneliness, or living alone each played a significant role in premature death. 
Over 42 million Americans over the age of 45 suffer from chronic loneliness. Now, isn't that a 21st century uh, problem? Chronic loneliness, according to the AARP. More than one quarter of the population lives alone and more than half are unmarried. Now, living alone and being unmarried doesn't necessarily mean that you are uh, suffering from chronic loneliness. But among those who are living alone and unmarried, uh, that is a problem, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, people that consider themselves lonely were less likely to engage in social activities, such as going to religious services, in other words, church, volunteering or finding a hobby, the AARP study concluded. Now, it's based on a scale created by UCLA, where respondents were asked about various characteristics linked to loneliness. Well, one theory, loneliness and isolation can lead to anxiety. A family and relationship psychotherapist in Beverly Hills, California, and the author of The Self-Aware Parent writes, uh, Fran Walfish, and without taking action, it's only likely to get worse. The antidote to loneliness, of course, is activity and fellowship, community. Going outside, doing chores in the house, or meeting someone for dinner, for lunch, for coffee. What's more, friends and family also play an important role when people get older and sick, helping them through their recovery or even spotting symptoms that a person might let go untreated. Now, think about, uh, I want to encourage you to stop and think for just a moment. Think of two or three people you know of who live alone, perhaps, um, who are relatively isolated. They don't have a natural uh, network of of um, fellowship. My mother, for example, she's 86 years old. She had a, a, a pretty strong, large circle of friends. There are only two people who are still in that circle of friends that have uh, that are living. One is 92 years old. She doesn't get around as much as she once did. She and my mother, who happen to be cousins, talk to one another at least once a day, sometimes more than once a day. But neither of them has the freedom or the mobility to get together on a regular basis. Now, think about someone you know from your church, for example. Now, they may come to services once a week, but what about the rest of the week? Are they a part of a community? Are they engaged in fellowship? Are they having conversations on with any regularity? And what role might you play in addressing what for them might be chronic loneliness. Now, you may not be a healthcare provider, but according to these studies, and they're pretty impressive, and the numbers of uh, people they represent, I think, is representative, seems to indicate that being a part of a community, engaging in fellowship can have a significant impact on the not only the quality of life, but one's longevity as well. Now, lonely people are more likely to have a higher use of medication, a higher incidence of falling, and as such, an increasing um, their risk of requiring long-term care. Huh, you may not be a caregiver, you could have an impact. According to the Campaign to End Loneliness, and there's actually a Campaign to End Loneliness. This is a UK-based nonprofit to help reduce the number of isolated people, particularly the elderly. Obesity can also lead to early death and... Um and shortens the life of the person uh, uh, more so than other preventable health problems, including smoking, high blood pressure. But loneliness, apparently, if, uh, according to the headline in these studies, is more dangerous than that. Now, there's a body of research in support of this theory. A study from the University of Arizona, published in January, showed that lonely people were less likely to have close relationships, manage daily stress, maintain their health, or sleep well. It found loneliness is highly individual and determined by a person's expectations and needs. Another study published in the Aging and Mental Health Journal in 2003 suggests loneliness was most significant in older men. Older people in particular may face a higher risk of loneliness because the loss of family and friends or a job. The routine that was uh, that sustained their relationships is no longer uh, in place. Perhaps a spouse is gone, the work life is ended, 
and uh, the the circle of friends has has dissipated. Merely being single or living alone doesn't necessarily mean a person is unhappy or indeed lonely, particularly for many uh, millennials. Young single people feel more of a connection to others than their married counterparts, according to a 2007 paper called Social Embeddedness and Late Life Parenthood. The number of people who never marry has been growing over the years. That's a subject for a whole nother program. And a record percentage, 25%, may never marry, according to Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit Pew Research Center. Voice-activated personal assistants like Amazon's um, AMZN, Alex, uh, Alexa, rather, and Apple's um, AAPL, Siri, um, have been reviewed favorable by elderly Americans and people with disabilities, although that's a poor substitute for actual relationship, conversation, and engagement. These devices do help. They let them uh, control their environment, such as choose music, and um, partly because it acts as a companion answering questions. Um, you know, by rote anyway. Technology can help people pull themselves out of loneliness to a point, but direct human interaction is still better. Depending on how long the person has been isolated, sometimes baby steps can help. I bring it up because uh, my family just recently, it's been about a week and a half, we had something of a family reunion. It was sort of loosely configured. Whoever could come came. I took my mom and she and my 92-year-old elder cousin, uh, they were there and we had fellowship together. And one of the things I kept hearing them uh, reference was the good old days and how the family used to do this and how uh, siblings who are no longer uh, with us uh, were a part of the social life and social fabric uh, of their uh, of their history. And I was reminded how important it is to take to make the effort uh, to call my 92 year old cousin. Uh, the conversation may not be very lively. We may repeat the same subjects we repeated in the last conversation, but it's important that we engage in that uh, conversation. Sometimes I just pick her and take my mom uh, for a long drive to places they haven't seen in a long time. I, I let them sit in the back seat so the two of them can speak to one another, and I'm sort of the chauffeur, but I overhear their conversation. And just to hear the the joy in their voice as they're talking, oh, I haven't been here in years, and look what changed there. Um, making sure that they have something to look forward to, places to go, people to see. And while loneliness is, um, is uh, chronic for many people, it is easily uh, cured, if you will. And I wonder if we might consider stepping out and uh, maybe providing a ride to, to church to someone whose company may not be as um, exciting as someone else's, but bringing them to and taking them back uh, home again, uh, having lunch maybe once a Sunday, including those who... Uh, might fall into this category of loneliness. Anyway, thought you might uh, find that interesting. Well, today, of course, is Thursday. I know you knew that, but I needed to mention it for myself. That means that tomorrow is Friday. Again, I needed to be reminded. And that means we're not going to deal with the more serious matters of the day. Of course, if there's breaking news, we will break in. But uh, we're going to take a, a focus, a look at the lighter side of the news. So if you'd like to join us and maybe, you know, have a smile on your face rather than a furrowed brow. Let me encourage you to join us here in about, what, 22 hours when the Georgine Rice Show will resume. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hey, call somebody up. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.